excuse me for dipping down there. If you're online, thanks for joining us this morning. I'm sure we have a few extra people online this morning due to the weather, but I'm glad you're able to jump in and see all that God is doing. And uh, if you were part of the Word First Bible Publishing Ministry, I just want to just encourage you. I was, I was just thinking, uh, forgive me for still getting dressed in front of you. It's not my... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Didn't need that one, brother. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but at any rate, uh, so uh, we, we, uh, I was thinking about of all the Bibles that we've produced, and I don't know now, uh, someone could probably tell us how many thousands, Bob, do you know? I don't know. Thousands of Bibles. You know, I was thinking, if just Brian Rinker got saved at the jail, you know, isn't that it? Eternity, man. And, uh, and praise God. So I just want to encourage all of, all of you and all of you online that, uh, and all of you that are part of the Bible publishing ministry. Uh, the Word of God. We, we call it Word First because of a gentleman named Rochunga Pudati, uh, who Randy and I met, uh, who uh, <clears throat> lived in, uh, in Asia, just north of uh, Myanmar there in uh, modern-day India. And uh, he, he made his life's work to both create an alphabet and translate the Bible into his, his native language and, uh, so he could reach his people. And he did that. And Randy and I were able to meet him uh, one time, and we had a visit with him and his wife and uh, for some other projects that we were working on. And at any rate, uh, he was such a man of faith, and he believed that if you just got the word there, uh, God would do the rest. And so he would, in the 70s, he was sent Bibles in, in Russian language into Russia, just got out the phone book and started mailing Bibles to people, trusting that God would lead people to Christ just from reading the word of God. And so uh, so as we were driving back to the airport, Ray and I were talking. I'm like, if we ever have a Bible publishing ministry, let's call it Word First. And uh, so that's where the name came from, and that's where Word First name started, because we believe the Word of God is enough. Now, that doesn't negate our responsibility, right, to go and preach the gospel. Uh, but, man, the Word of God is powerful, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it, it quickens us. It brings us to life. And I just I can't say enough about God's Word. And so what we're going to do is bust open the Word this morning and get into Malachi chapter 2. And uh, happy Valentine's Day. And so uh, I'm glad that you guys are here. You're choosing to love God, love people. On Valentine's Day 2021, uh, if you have your Bible, uh, be in Malachi chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 14 through 17. As we've been talking about avoiding spiritual heart disease, um, <clears throat> the purpose of this sermon series has been to prepare our hearts and our lives for the coming of Christ, for His church, by learning from the mistakes that Israel's made, right? Anybody make any Valentine's Day mistakes? I've got this. I'm not going to tell all the stories. Amy knows I have the most incredible story of how not to do Valentine's Day. I mean, <laughs> I'll say that for like a marriage conference or something, but uh, it was just horrible. So I know what it's like to make mistakes. Israel's making some mistakes. And, uh, and so what we want to do is learn from their mistakes. I'm, I'm the youngest of three, and one of the things I learned to do is learn from my older siblings' mistakes, right? So that's what we're to do. Even... The Word of God tells us that. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that these things are written for our examples and in samples, right? So you can go back and see what Israel did and then do the things well that they did well and then don't do the things wrong that they did wrong. So I pray that that is what we will be doing. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the seat rack in front of you. Be turning to page 1,269 in those uh, HBF Bibles and uh, we can... Uh, get started this morning. So on Valentine's Day 2021, we are reminded of God's love for Israel. He opens this book in Malachi uh, in chapter 1 and verse 2 
uh, with a bold statement. He says, I have loved you, saith the Lord. This is a bold declaration of God's commitment and fidelity to Israel and Judah, even though they have not loved him back. Anybody ever loved and not be loved back? You know, Paul said that. He says, the more I love, the less I be loved. Paul was like Christ. So Paul was a man who, who loved people and didn't love to get anything back. He loved others because God loved him first. And so that's the kind of attitude, that's the kind of heart attitude we need. It's Valentine's Day, man, so uh, that, that, that'll go a long way. You, need, you can take that to your wife or to your husband and uh, to the person you love and, and love people even when you don't get loved back. So that's exactly what God's doing in Malachi. But he sends him a message. It's a bold declaration, right? The, the Valentine's Day is about declaring your love. Well, God did that in, Gen- or in Malachi chapter 1 and verse 2 when he told them, I have loved you, saith the Lord. That bold declaration of God's commitment and fidelity to Israel and Judah, even though they didn't love him back, was exactly what they needed to hear. Uh, And God wants their heart to change uh, because they literally have not had any... They've made commitments, but they haven't kept them. You know, it's 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 that... Honey, I'm going to change. I'm going to change. But you know what? Without the power of Christ, you can't change. Only Christ can change you. And so... Uh, we don't want to develop that type of cavalier and callous attitude toward God because, you know, we are called priests and kings, and he's addressing the leaders, the priests. Literally, in chapter 2, he opens up and says, oh, now, And now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. Right? So he's being very specific, and he's drilling down. He's like, hey, you priests, you. I'm talking to you because you're, you are responsible for the heart of what we're about, and that's worship. And so he's talking to the priests, and he wants them to know a few things. And so we've covered those. And uh, what we're really addressing are the two, I just, two broad categories that I've given in this series that we got to address. First, if we want to avoid spiritual heart disease, we got to be faithful to God's word, right? We got to be faithful to the things that he has given us. And secondly, which we started last week, we have to be faithful to our word. So last month, we looked at the need to be faithful to God's word. Uh, and we saw in Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we need to faithfully hear God's word, right? You're here this morning or you're joining us online because you are faithfully wanting to hear God's word. Hopefully, uh, our relationship grows to where we hear him daily. We hear him moment by moment. We're always looking to his, literally, we have a word so we can hear from God. There's no excuses for us not to hear from God. So we have his word. Uh, faithfully keep God's word. It's one thing to hear it. It's another thing to do it, right? So we should hear God's word, keep God's word, and we should also communicate God's word. And then the last thing we talked about uh, last month was forsaking, uh, forsake corrupting God's word, right? We don't want to twist God's words. Uh, we want to give people what we have been given, the pure word of God. So that was what we talked about last month. Last week, we jumped into our study of Malachi 2, verses 14 through 17, and we saw uh, how important it is to be faithful to our word. And I'll review that in just a moment, but I'd like to go back to our text in Malachi chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, and, and look at uh, what, the, what the Lord said through Malachi to the nation of Israel. So if you have your Bibles, I know you got all seated. Could I ask you to stand and honor God's word uh, just to disrupt your life for one more minute this morning in the snow and everything and cold? Malachi chapter 2. Amy Joe, could you throw me my glasses? Or hand them to me, that's better. Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. Yet ye say, wherefore? 
Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And did not he make one? Yet he, yet he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one? That he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away... For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit, that ye deal not treacherously. Ye have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, Wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, Every one that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Or, Where is the God of judgment? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time, and we thank you for the opportunity once again to delve into these passages, and we pray God a blessing on the reading and the hearing of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So last week when we picked up this text, and we really started back in verse 11, and we saw that to keep our word, um, first of all, it's so important to do that so we, don't, so we don't repeat the offense of betraying God. That's what happened to the nation of Israel uh, in regard to the relationship they have with God. After being taken out of captivity, they betrayed him once again. And then there's the consequences of betraying God. We, we looked at the man that doeth this will be cut off. And then we talked about how the master by name is cut off. The scholar, the priest is cut off. And then we spent some time talking about the evidence of what betraying God looks like. I gave you several verses. But the manifestation of that is the callous heart of Israel. It caused them to be cut off. They're callous, and then we looked at the example of the callous heart of Esau and the callous heart of Saul and we talked about the callous heart of the lost causes him to be cut off. And what, the, what really damnation and, and eternal death is all about is being cut off from a benevolent God. And then lastly, we saw the tender heart of the saved. It is not cut off. What a promise that is, that God is near the broken and contrite heart. So we don't want to be like those in the leadership of Israel. Today, uh, all, of all days, is a great day to think about what it means to love God and our wives, praise the Lord. So the best gift a man can give uh, those he loves any day of the year is a love for God and a love for His Word. I mean, ultimately, if we don't love God, we don't have the capacity to love others, and especially God. But today, uh, God has already addressed that in the previous verses from verse uh, 10 down through, 11, through 13. But this morning, or 11 through 13, this morning I want to just pick up on this, this piece about the wives. So we should keep our word to our wives. In Malachi 2.14, he, he picks it up and says, Yet ye say, wherefore? What's he talking about? Well, God's... God witnesses our, our covenant, right? He witnesses our covenant. He says, Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet she is thy companion and the wife of thy covenant, in verse 14. So God's a witness to our covenant. And so we as men, especially, should not play dumb with God, should we? Nobody should play dumb with God because God knows everything. And so the leadership of Israel heard Malachi loud and clear in Malachi 2, 11 through 13. Before they can articulate a response, because God is telling them, Hey guys, you don't bring me your tears anymore. Don't come to the altar with more sacrifices. Why? Because I want your obedience, just like with Saul. I don't need any more sacrifice until I get your obedience. I need you to obey what I'm saying. Because they, before they can even articulate a response, God's already got it. He, he's beat them to the punch. And he's posed a question. He knows what they're asking. Ye say, wherefore? Translation, why won't you accept our offerings and our hearts upon the altar? 
Why won't you, Lord? What, what, wherefore? Why won't you not accept our offering? And they had a good reason to ask that because God, God is a gracious God, and they know that. God is saying, I'm glad you asked uh, because, he says, the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. He's like, I don't want you coming up to the altar. It'd be like a Sunday morning, right? Some guy's beating his wife at home, and um, he's done it week after week, and he comes to the altar week after week. And if, if, I, had, if I was Jesus, the Holy Ghost, I'd I just meet him at the altar. Hey, dude, before you come to the altar this week, why don't you quit beating your wife, right? He's quit it. Stop it. Coming back and forth to the altar is not doing the work. Maybe we should call the police, right? Maybe we should take you out back and teach you a lesson. I don't know. But you're not, you're not learning well, you're, it's a joke. And God's saying, it's a joke. Quit it. I see the way you're treating the wives of your youth. Now, and, and he's saying, you're not treating your wives right. Why are you trying to get right with me? You need to go back and get right with her. And then I'll let you get right with me. Right? You know, in the New Testament, right? If, there's, if you have ought, leave the gift at the altar. Go make it right. And then come back and deal with the Lord. And so God is saying, I'm glad you asked, because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. That word treacherously keeps coming back up. So what God is communicating is, I will not accept your sacrifices and your tears upon the altar, because you treat, you treat me the same way you treat the wife of your youth. Think about that. If you're a man who doesn't treat your wife right, or maybe your wife that doesn't treat your husband right, let's just, you know, this can go either way. Well, how are you treating God right? Right? If you aren't obeying the Lord's voice today, then what are you, what are you doing? I mean, he's saying, why, why are you coming to me? You're not even treating the person I've tr entrusted you with properly. So you're dealing with your wife of your youth treacherously, treacherously, by violating allegiance or, or faith uh, pledged, is what the Webster's 1828 says, by betraying trust faithlessly. In the, in the margin of, of the Oxford, wide margin, the King James gang, the translation gang, they translated that word as, as um, um, faithfully, meaning that you're betraying uh, the faithfulness. It's a, it's a betrayal. It's a, in the, and when you look up that word, it's... Is, is almost devious. This word treacherously is only found in the Old Testament. It's mentioned 23 times in 18 verses from Judges chapter 9 to its last mention in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 16. <clears throat> the, word that, that the word itself implies deceit and unfaithfulness. Uh, it is translated as offend, deceitful, and transgression in other locations in the Old Testament. So God is upset because they won't keep their word to the wife of their youth, but they deal with them treacherously or deceitfully. And this is, is nothing new for God when dealing with his people Israel. And I believe that's in part why he says, I know what you're going to say. Well, why, 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 can't we bring our, why can't we come to the altar? Why can't we come and, and throw our tears out on the altar and bring some sacrifices and get this right, Lord? Because you're always willing for us to come and get things right, aren't you? Well, they have a good precedent for that because for God, he's used to dealing with his people not obeying. In Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 20, uh, he uses the same type of words. Before he took Israel into captivity, he is re he's recorded their treacherous behavior. And he likens Israel to his bride. In Jeremiah three twenty, he says, Surely as a wife treacherously departeth from her husband, 
So ye have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. Over and over, God points out how treacherously Israel hath dealt with him. I'm not going to look those verses up, but you can go over to Jeremiah 5.11, Jeremiah uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and verse 6. He keeps saying, they have dealt, and he uses the word, very treacherously. They've dealt with me very deceitfully. They have been very, uh, they have been, they've wronged me, right? That's, they haven't been f- faithful. They haven't had any fidelity toward me. So he keeps saying that they're very treacherous in those passages. And at, the time, at that time, God was gracious to forgive and heal them if they would only repent. In Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 2, and, or I'm sorry, verse 21, I should say, rather. Jeremiah three twenty-one. the Bible says, A voice was heard upon the high places, weeping and supplications of the children of Israel, for they have perverted their way, and they have forgotten the Lord their God. And this is what God said to them. This is before captivity. He said, Return, ye backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Behold, we come unto thee, for thou art the Lord our God. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, Fix yourself and come unto me. He says, Come unto me, and I will heal your backsliding. Put me first. I mean, one of the problems with the Malachi in the time, of, they kept putting the Lord last. He was their leftovers. They weren't giving the first fruits. They were giving whatever they had left over. It was their will. And then God's was coming in second, third, fourth, fifth place. And he's like, this has got to be turned around. When you come to me, when you put me first, and you do what I tell you, and you obey me, then guess what? I will put your other things in order. It's amazing how that works, isn't it? I will take care of your sin if you simply come to me, backsliding children. I will heal your backslidings. I think all of us understand, well, not everybody does. Probably all of us listening here, we understand that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. The problem is we can't do anything about it. That's why we need Jesus. Jesus is the one who makes us whole. He's the one that makes us right. But we do have to cooperate. One thing that we can give Jesus is our mind, our will, and our emotion. We can make a decision to do what he tells us to do, which is come to him. The word treacherously is used five times, and, the number, and that's the number of death. In the book of Malachi, all occurrences are in, in chapter 2. Malachi 2.10, Malachi 2.11, Malachi 2.14, verse 15, and verse 16. And so, now he's telling them, now don't pretend she's not precious. Don't give me this. Don't, don't, don't go there, Adam. <laughs> don't go there and tell me how bad your wife is. I'm not wanting to hear it right now. Right? Don't pretend she's not precious. God's reminding them that their loyalty, where their loyalty should lie. He says, the wife of your youth. He actually calls her your companion. She's been with you through the seasons of life. The implication is they're no longer young, right? The guys that are unloading their wives have been with them a while. He's like, hey, quit unloading the wife of your youth so that you can find a new model over here. You thought midlife crisis was something new, didn't you? No. Nothing new under the sun. She's bore your children. She's put up with you. She's put up with you growing up. And now you're going to dump her? No. A covenant is a free will vow. These men made before God to honor their wives. 
just like we do today. And they're falling miserably, or they're failing miserably and discarding them, discarding them for a new model. And the problem with these models, not only are they pagan, uh, they worship pagan idols, and they're in, introducing idolatry back into the nation of Israel, which is why they went into captivity. And I've said that over and over, so you guys know the story. So practically speaking, what's that mean to us? I'm glad you, I'm glad you asked. So God, God expects us, well, he expects us to keep our word. He, he does. He wants us to keep our word. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 4, the Bible says, When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. So God is like not happy. You know, don't mistake God's meekness for weakness, and don't mistake his graciousness for lasciviousness, right? And so it's not like God is happy with us when we don't obey. Just because he hasn't spanked you yet doesn't mean that he is not displeased. He says, don't make it, if you make a vow to God and don't keep it, you are a, what is it, class? A fool. You're a fool. That's what the text says. Now, we just celebrated some baptisms here. A couple guys followed the, the Lord's command to be baptized after salvation. What we're all, all of us that have been born again and, and followed the Lord and believers' baptism, what we're saying is Jesus Christ, man, he's our Savior, and he's our Lord. We acknowledge him. There's no other God before him. He's the only one that can save us. He's the only God not only can save us, but he's the only person we should be serving. There's only one true God, and it's Jesus Christ, the man Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, go check it out in the Bible. Lord and Savior go hand in hand. All right, Jesus Christ is the Lord, period. And that means, well, who's the Lord? The Lord is the guy who calls the shots. You know, even in the world of, uh, you know, outside of the Bible, they, in, the, in, in Europe, they used to call the person who owned everything the Lord, right? Or the man of the house was the Lord. He was the dude calling the shots. That means, well, the buck stops with him, but also you kind of, you need to do what he says because, well, he's in authority, Jesus is our authority. We said, Jesus, I can't get to heaven. I give up my life and I take yours off. I mean, thank you for giving me your... Okay. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, what is the name of the Lord? Pray tell. Jesus. Jesus is the Lord. And when we get saved, we call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. What that means is he should be calling the shots in our life. Now, we give grace. We understand that baby Christians got to learn. They got to grow. We just had a discipleship meeting. We talked about the cost of discipleship yesterday with disciplers and, and how important it is for people. I mean, the people that really need to be obeying the word of God are the people who know better. Right? The burden falls upon us. But ignorance is still no excuse. So it's better, it says in, in Ecclesiastes 5.5, 5, better is it that thou shouldest not vow than thou shouldest vow and not pay. Now, fortunately, salvation's free. There's nothing to give except your heart. But boy, don't we make promises to God sometimes. Oh, God. Oh, God. Be careful. I remember this coming, settling in on me very soberly when I was about, about 17, I think, years old. I don't remember. I may have been 18. But I was pretty young. And uh, my discipler drug up on me. I was or my disciple, I was discipling. So I was probably about 18. I was discipling a young man. And he drug up, and he wasn't. He didn't show up, you know. And so I went next door and at, to the youth pastor's house, and um, the youth pastor brought me in, and I was just rapping with him. We we're having a good time, talking. 
and I wasn't in the youth ministry at that time. I never did actually hit the youth ministry, but I love the youth pastor. He's a good guy. So uh, um, you guys might know him, Shane Crawford. So Shane and I were sitting around in his living room talking, and uh, I said, Shane, man, I just, I just want to follow Jesus. I mean, I told the Lord to just kill me if I don't. And, man, I remember his face. He just was like, he looked at me just super sober, and he said, Brian, you really need to be careful what you tell the Lord. And I did mean that, too. So I wasn't, I wasn't saying anything I didn't mean. But I did not want to go, you know, like that. That's why you often hear me quote that, that uh, hymn, uh, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Oh, Lord, take my heart and seal it, seal it in thy courts above. Well, I don't know about y'all, but, but I, I feel that tension. I still, I've been saved for over 30 years. I still feel that tension of the heart. You know, don't you want your heart to be close to God? That's really what Malachi is talking about. I love you. Do you love me? And man, if I don't get in the Word daily and I don't pray daily, it's not enough to preach. It's not enough to, to, to be religious, right? I've got to spend time with Jesus so my heart doesn't wander. And so that's basically how I was articulating it back when I was an 18-year-old kid. I was just saying, man, uh, I just don't want to wonder. And I, w- and I meant that. I would rather, and God was actually working in my life to, to challenge me on what it was I was willing to give up. And I was counting the cost early, you know, and I was setting my path so that I could follow the Lord because I did not want to go to the right hand or the left. I wanted to follow the Lord faithfully. Man, I, I still want to follow. You guys want to follow the Lord faithfully? Man, I do too. If we get out of this place and follow the Lord faithfully, hallelujah. By the way, Jim Boyette called me this morning, and so he says hi, and I need to tell you that you guys that. So in his last days, he's thinking of y'all and you all online. So you just need to know that. Talking about a faithful guy. Anyway, so turn over to Ezra chapter nine. In Ezra chapter 9, verse 1, God's already dealt with this, this issue of unfaithfulness with the children of Israel. He says, Now when these things were done, the princes came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even the, of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Woo! That's a long list of folk right there. They were very eclectic and diverse, weren't they? For they have taken of the daughters, here's what the problem was. For they have taken of their daughters, for they have taken of their daughters, the daughters of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Egyptians and the Amorites. They've taken their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, and the hand of the princes and the rulers hath been chief in this trespass. O priests, listen up. And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment, my mantle, and plucked off my hair of my head and my beard and sat down a stonied. I mean, this, this freaked Ezra out. He's like, what are you doing? Why is this a big deal? Because... The seed, the promised seed, is going to come through this line. We don't need to be intermingling. So how do we handle that in the New Testament? Well, we're not worried about like color and race and, and all of that kind of stuff in marriage. But what we are worried about is not being unequally yoked together with who? Unbelievers. 
Well, that's a broad statement Paul's making. It's dealing with contracts in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 there. But the one big contract, it's a covenant, is the one you make in marriage. It's the second biggest decision you make in your life. The biggest decision is getting saved. Second biggest decision is who you marry. That's a big deal. And, and Ezra's like, what in the what are you doing? What in the world are you doing? Intermarrying with pagans and bringing their, their idolatrous practices into the, into the household of faith. What in the world? They didn't keep their word. And by the way, to do this, they didn't keep their wives. When we break our covenant and our vows with our spouse, we break our promise and our covenant to God. You say, well, hold up now there, Brian. I'm, I'm always right with God. No, are you? First Peter chapter 3, Peter said, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, the precious vessel, right? As being heirs together of the grace of life. Why? That your prayers be not hindered. I'm using an Old Testament passage and an Old Testament reality, but it has a New Testament application, right? The truth is, Peter says, listen, your fellowship can be disrupted if you don't keep your marriage right. You can lose fellowship with God. You won't lose your salvation if you're saved, but you can lose fellowship with God. Your prayers can be hindered. There is a reason that a broken marriage can break your fellowship with God. In every dispensation, God highlights marriage because it's a picture of what? Christ in the church. It's a picture of Christ in the church. It's a big deal. Don't mess up God's pictures. That's his pictures, not ours. We fit into those pictures. We don't create our own, our own program. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 30. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and he shall be joined unto his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular... Every one of you couples, not just in general, but everyone who's married, uh, let every one of you in particular so love his wife as himself. To a man, he's saying. So we don't go back to what happened in Ezra's time, in Nehemiah's time, in Malachi's time. Fidelity, which is a basically no Ashley Madison, right? Fidelity, no whatever else. No hooking up. Outside of the context of what the Word of God says. Don't plead ignorance, Malachi 2.15. And did not he make one? He's asking questions. And he had, he had the residue of the Spirit. I'll get to that in a minute. And wherefore one? That he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. Now, God starts asking questions, and, and the question is, and did not he make one? So God's uh, continuing to teach. God starts asking, when, by the way, when God starts asking questions, you're in dangerous territory. Job was justified in his righteousness, right? You remember, he sat there, and everybody's like this, that. He's like, man, guys, I'm, I'm, ser- I'm right with God. And, and, for all we know, he was right with God. But one thing that God wanted him to know that he, is, well, he wasn't God. <laughs> and so in the book of Job, chapter 38 through 39, God just busts out several couple chapters worth of questions on him. And there ain't one of them Job knows how to answer. 
So all these wise guys sitting around telling, shooting out the lip about all of this, and, and Job's like, well, no, and well, this, and they're all going back and forth, and they're all sharing their minds, and there's a lot of cool stuff in Job to, to look at, a lot, of, a lot of incredible things, actually, scientific things. It's amazing what's in there. But at the end of the day, God gets the last word, and he brings it with several questions. And when he gets done, and I don't have time to read those two chapters, when he gets done, Job's like, in chapter 40, Job's like, I'm good. <laughs> I don't have nothing else to say. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I, I'm vile. I'm vile. Uh, what shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth once I have spoken, but I will not answer, yea, twice. I will, I will proceed no further. I have nothing else to say. Your case is over. I will quit justifying myself. Because there's only one justifier, right? That's the man Christ Jesus. Job was a good man, but he wasn't Jesus. God's referring to Adam and Eve when he asks, and did he not make one? He's going all the way back to the beginning. Genesis 2, 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh instead thereof, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman. And brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and, and shall cleave unto his wife. And they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. There was this union of one. Two became one. They were completely exposed. They were transparent. And there was no shame. No shame. At that time, there was nothing, to, no need to be covered because they were covered in God's glory until the sin entered in. One wife has always been God's plan. In, in Matthew 19, Jesus answered the Pharisees and he said to them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? He said, For this call shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. And they, shall, they twain, the two, right, shall be one flesh didn't i make you one when you took the wife of your youth weren't you one why, why are you dividing that up he's saying the jews didn't understand that marriage was a picture of christ in the church they, they couldn't have understood that at the time wasn't revealed yet but what they did know is that from the beginning god created one wife for adam and eve was the mother of all living they also understood there was a promised seed and a covenant made to come through the seed of a woman would be the demise of Satan. And that, that prophecy kept getting extrapolated on and going through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right through the nation of Israel to Judah, through Judah's loins to David. And then David's throne, there would come a Messiah. They, they had all of that information. And as a matter of fact, that's the next thing on the agenda in the Word of God after Malachi is the coming of the king in Matthew. So there's a strange statement in Malachi 2.15, yet had he the residue of the Spirit. And I've got to be frank, I looked at that myself and said, what is he talking about? What is that about? What is God referring to here? I believe this is tying us into what is later in the fourth sentence of the 15th verse. The leaders ask another dumb question in Malachi 2.15. And they say, and wherefore one? Huh? Well, I only need one wife. I mean, can't I get two or three? 
I mean, you didn't judge David, did you? I don't know. Have you read how David's life turned out? He recorded in Deuteronomy, when you become a king, don't multiply wives. Don't multiply horses to yourself. It causes you problems. There's not one of those fellows in the Old Testament could handle more than one wife very well. They had problems. And God specifically says, I'm talking about the wife of your youth. What are you doing to her? Don't give me this uh, and wherefore one business. And the answer to the statement about the residue of the spirit is found in the answer to the question. It's also found in what we saw in Ezra. And wherefore one, what God is saying is that God intended to bring the promised seed through the seed of Adam and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, as I've mentioned. And they mixed in those mixed marriages were messing up the residue, the remnant that was left in Adam that the spirit of God was going to use to bring forth the Messiah. This is in part why God is bringing this up for the record. In Ezra chapter 10 and verse 44, the Bible says, All these had taken strange wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. God reveals a principle here. And though he preserves the word, capital W, he chooses to use human instrumentation to do it. In 400 years from the writing of Malachi, after that silent period, would come forth the, the, the prophecy of a child being born. And this child will be born to a woman named Mary. Of course, we know that now. And somehow, in God's ability to be God, he produced the Word, capital W. The Word of God came forth, conceived in a woman named Mary, who was a sinner just like you and I. But from that vessel comes forth the sinless Son of God. And he was able to overcome her in the Spirit, take her DNA and bring forth the only man on this planet that has never sinned. Jesus Christ, all God, but also all man. The God-man, Christ Jesus, the Messiah. The Jews didn't know all of that at the time that Jesus was talking to, through Malachi, that God was speaking through Malachi, but God was knowing what was next on the agenda. He's saying, guys, you've got to stop this. The Jews didn't understand all that, but God did. And he was letting them know that once more they needed to knock off the intermixing of their marriages with the neighboring pagan women. Don't deal treacherously with the wife of your youth. This is still a great counsel today, isn't it? In every dispensation, some of these principles just go from Genesis to Revelation. Don't deal treacherously with the wife of your youth. Don't be deceitful. This is still great counsel today. It's wise to love your wife and the wife of your youth all the days of your life until death do you part. As a matter of fact, most of us stood at an altar... And we actually made vows and had a covenant where we said, I will do this till death do us part. And we made a vow. Proverbs 15, 15 5, I'm sorry, Proverbs 5.15 says this. Unless you go, you, you, you're a little thirsty and you want to go somewhere else to get a drink. Proverbs 15 and verse, or 5, I'm sorry, Proverbs 5 and verse 15. Drink waters out of thine own cistern, and running waters out of thine own well. Let thy fountain be dispersed abroad, and rivers of waters in the streets. Let them be only thine, and not a stranger's with thee. Let thy fountain be blessed, and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Okay, what's that look like? Well, this is what it looks like. Let her be as the loving hind in the pleasant row. Let her breast satisfy the 
at all times. No one else's breasts. And be thou ravished always with her love. She's the, she, one, a one woman man. And why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a stranger? He's like, why would you depart? So God witnesses this covenant. He understands the relationship and he put all that together. But God also witnesses the covering of sin. In verse 16, the, the text goes on to say, For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. That's divorce. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. And you can take this a couple ways, and I'm going to. The simple way to take it is someone covers up an indiscretion, right, by their clothing. You always see a, a lady, right, who's been beaten. She fixes her hair and puts on the glasses, right, so nobody can see the, the bruise in the eye or what have you. They're covering it up with their clothing, with their apparel. And there's certainly a sense in which that's true. I think it, this perhaps even has a double entendre here, that God is saying a few things at once. But when he deals with this clothing and this covering, the men of Israel were covering sin instead of covering their wives. They were leaving their wives hanging out to dry. God designed the husband to be a covering or a protection for the wife. Since Genesis 3, we have seen that when a man fails to cover and protect his bride, it opens her to harm. And this is why God addresses Adam in Genesis 3, 9 through 11. And he calls out Adam and he asks Adam, what in the, where are you, Adam? What, what about Eve? Well, he's not asking Eve right now. He's asking Adam. He'll deal with Eve later. He'll deal with Satan later. The first person he asks is Adam. Adam, where are you at? Think about that, men. Well, the devil did it. No, where were you at? Where were you at? God calls out Adam and he asks him, where's he at? God addressed Adam first because he was charged to protect his wife, not to capitulate to Satan's will and follow her lead into sin. The matter of covering was understood by most cultures until recent decades here in the U.S. When the chivalrous, I'm going to try to say, I get a tongue twisted, chivalrous, is that how I, did I say that right? Chivalry, you know, chivalry, I can say that. But that role, the role of chivalry, be careful here, I might cuss accidentally. <clears throat> the role of the husband, he's to be, he, was to, he was to be a man that would be the, 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 the guy that would be the, the knight in shining armor, so to speak. That ideal guy that would cover his wife, he would protect his wife, he would care for his wife. Well now, of course, that's upside down and backwards. ERA, right? And all of that. Kind of put a damper on that. And partly because of human nature, because men would take that and abuse it, just like they did in Israel. It's all about not being submitted to Christ. And husbands twist that and, and begin to oppress their wives. But prior to that, it was understood that valiant men honored, protected, and cherished women, especially their wives, their daughters, and their mothers. I mean, that used to be how it was before the males started being redefined and becoming effeminate and becoming sissies and metrosexual and whatever all those terms mean. I don't even know what that means. <clears throat> Sorry, I, I went from preaching to meddling there for a second. So the issues of covering is typified by Boaz in the Old Testament when he covers Ruth with his skirt, symbolizing that he will care for her, protect her as her husband, as the Lord allows. In Ruth 3, 7, it says, And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, his heart was merry. Now, by the way, a Moabitess Ruth had to be instructed on all this because that probably was not how it rolled in Moab. right? They rolled in Moab the way the world's rolling today. 
which is every man doing that which is right in their own eyes. As a matter of fact, when you worship female deities and have sex goddesses, it kind of messes the whole thing up and puts it upside down and backwards, which is what all of those pagan deities were about. So the role of the man and the woman get turned upside down. So, so, so uh, Naomi's like saying, okay, Ruth, this is what you need to do. Boaz is going to get it. Don't sweat it. This is what you do. You go lay at his feet. You uncover, take his, his garment off his feet and lie there, and he'll take it from there. He'll knows what to do. Why? Because in the culture of the nation of Israel, they understood these things. There used to be a time in the church where we understood these things. There used to be a time even in our culture where we understood these things. But we're in a different time right now. So I'm slowing down the, the train a little bit on this text, and I'm taking my time because we need to understand some things and apply them in our lives. So as Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn, and she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid her down. You know what attracted her to Boaz was his provision, his protection. As she gleaned in the corners of the field, as he says, don't touch that young lady. She's a virtuous woman. I don't want to hear one of you messing with her. There was a man in Israel that would protect her. God says she is virtuous. She needs a man that will take care of her, that will treat her right. So Boaz didn't literally cover Ruth with his skirt. That was not what was going on there on the threshing floor. What was understood as she pulled back that garment from his feet and lay down below him is that she was requesting him to cover her as her husband under the law of the kinsman redeemer. And, of course, that's exactly what happened. And from that came forth, uh, by the way, a promised seed. Ruth is in the bloodline of the Messiah. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 12, Paul uses the issue of of head coverings in the church at Corinth to reinforce the biblical teaching that men are to cover their wives as Adam was supposed to cover Eve, right? There, there, were, there were different customs that the Jews and the Gentiles were dealing with regarding head coverings, you know, the scars that the women wear. When we go to India, they still wear head coverings. It's a big deal. It's very important, symbolic. So uh, the Jews had a little different custom than the Gentiles, but Paul uses that situation to say, hey, listen, make sure the head is covered because of the angels. What he's saying is that make sure that the men are covering their wives so there's not confusion in the church. 1 Corinthians eleven seven says, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. Going back to Genesis. For the man is not uh, of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have uh, power on her head because of the angels. Which is another, verse 10 is kind of like, what? Because of the angels. What he's saying is that a man is to run interference for his wife to cover her head so that she is not open and susceptible to spiritual attack. That is what that's all about. And all this is understood by the Jews in Malachi's day, which makes the message of Malachi 2.16 very crystal clear. The Lord is alluding to the fact that these men are covering up their mistreatment of their wives by divorcing them, and then he lets them know that he hates it when men don't take the responsibility for their marriages and get divorced. The men of Israel were covering up their mistreatment of their wives and pretending that they were doing no wrong. What did we do? I mean, can't we have more than one wife? And this would be like a man that goes through a midlife crisis at 40 and leaves his wife and three children and and a mortgage and goes off with some 25-year-old, right? He's like, what? 
what? Dude, you're, you're a loser. Take care of your responsibilities. God doesn't look kindly to that kind of irresponsibility. You say, well, 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 what, man? You're the one that married her, not me. Take care of your wife. That's the deal. This is like hard words, and it shouldn't be. You know, as I'm saying that, I know. It's like I could be stepping all over people's toes. That's ridiculous. That tells you how far our culture's gotten from the Word of God. Man, I, I, I'm the, I am the son of a 17-year-old that got a 16-year-old pregnant out of wedlock. And you know what he did? He took care of his wife. And he was a man about it. And he had a family. And he took care of his business. That was the 1950s, early 60s. Man, we have gone so far. I sat in this room one time. Some young man impregnated a young lady. And I'm like, man, what are we going to do here? And he's like, well, I don't know. i got to go to college. I felt like grabbing him by the throat. I'm serious. I'm like, what are you talking about? Go to college. It irritates me, as you can tell. I'm irritated about it. That's how Ezra was. I just, I'm like, what is going on around here? That should not happen in the church. I get it in the world. Though God hates putting away or divorce, he had to command it in Ezra 10, 18, and 19. Everything was upside down and backwards. Why? Because he's like, you can't continue doing this. In Ezra 10, 18, he says, And among the sons of the priests, there was found that they had taken strange wives, namely of the sons of Jesh- uh, Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and the brethren of Maseah, and Eleazar, and Jerob, and, Gal- and uh, uh, Gedaliah. And they, gave their ha- uh, and they gave their hands that they would put away their wives, and being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their trespass. This God did take the ram of the flock. He says, okay, put away your wives Get rid of the pagan wives. I often tell couples, this is what I tell couples. You may or may not, may not like it, but this is how it rolls at my office. I tell couples oftentimes, I'm like, listen, the best time to get divorced, this is in pre-marriage. This is not after you're married. Once you're married, you bought the car. All right? So what, before they get married, I say the best time to get divorced is before you get married. The wisdom that you should, should break off a relationship that is not honoring to Christ is invaluable. So many times people want to fit an illicit relationship into a marital model of Christ, and I'm telling you, it doesn't work. If you're going to do marriage, do marriage God's way. If you fornicate before you marry, you will have consequences. If you ignore Scripture and marry unequally yoked, you will have consequences, and it may not survive. If you decide to have children first and marry later, there will be consequences. Now you're saying, well, Brian, you're so opinionated. I, that is not what I'm saying. I love you. You guys know me. I'm full of grace. I meet people where they're at. I take you where you need to go. That's still me. But I want you to know, there's consequences on Valentine's Day. Marriage is intended to be done God's way. Both the man and the woman are to be virgins and come together in wedlock. And we violate that. We shouldn't, but it happens. So stop it and do it right. Where that cannot be achieved. And if you're a Christian, there is no excuse. Don't be bringing me excuses. There's none. There's none. Wherefore that cannot be achieved. I'm sorry, where that can't be achieved, for whatever reason, the marital relationship should be entered to with holiness and godly sincerity, not fornication, defilement of the marriage bed, because that's a mockery to Christ. And I am speaking to Christians, not lost people. Lost people, 
People who don't know Christ are like dogs. There's a reason the analogy is dogs. And I'm not trying to be funny, and I'm not trying to mock or make fun of them. All the attributes of a dog are found in the world, right? And so they have no allegiance to any one dog, and they move around in the neighborhood and make puppies all over the place. Okay, guess what? That's the world. I'm not talking to people that don't know Jesus, by the way. My job is to edify the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The world, you know, don't be looking down on how the world rolls. That's how lost people act. That's how we act when we're not saved. And many of us can raise our hands and say, yep, we've been there and bought that t-shirt. Right? We're all frail and fragile. We get it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in the church. Jesus, God is speaking here to Malachi. He says, these are priests and these, these, these people, these are, these are priests and kings. These are the people who ought to know better. God hates divorce. He hates it, he says. But Matthew 9, he, he allowed it. Matthew 9, 7, he said unto them, Why did Moses then command to give writing a divorcement and, and to put her away? They're arguing with Jesus over divorcement, trying to trip him up. And he says, Oh, yeah, it is in the law of Moses, which I have claimed to, to, written, to speak to Moses and provide, so I will tell you why I put that in the law. Because the hardness of your hearts. It was not the way I designed it in the beginning. You know the reason that the judge in Cass County has to grant bills of divorcement? The Christians is because of the hardness of our hearts. The Lord tells the men of Israel to take heed to their spirit, for the Lord knows the reasons they're divorcing their wives, and it's treacherous, it's deceitful, it's wrong. So God witnesses our covenant of marriage and our corrupt sin. Our cover-up, I'm sorry, our cover-up of sin. And the last thing, and i got to be done here, is God witnesses our conflict of heart. And what this is really, let's just finish this up here. It says, ye have wearied the Lord with your words. It's almost like he's saying, shh, be quiet. Yet ye say, this is what they're saying, wherein have we wearied him? Why are we such a drag on you, Jesus? I know I keep saying Jesus, and this is Jehovah God in the Old Testament, but they're one. All right, so I hold up two fingers. They're one. <laughs> These three are one, all right? We got this song over in the Mighty Warriors we sing. One plus one plus one equals one. Yeah, so anyway, the Godhead is kind of cool. But anyway, I don't know what that has to do with anything. So it says, when you say every one that doeth evil is good, that bothers him. Don't say that. In the Lord, and he delighteth in them, or where is the God of judgment? You ever see people do that? Well, they're just a good guy. They're just a good gal. Oh, really? I just know they need to repent. No man is good. No, not one. What is the problem here is he's saying there's no judgment. There's no judgment. God is, he witnesses the conflict of heart. What is he really dealing with? The problem is of no repentance. So when there has been no true repentance over sin, it creates a lack of balance in our life. And it produces one of two problems that people uh, in the situation of the leadership of Israel at this time have. Number one, they justify, right? They, they come to the place where, where, you know, they become so lens, loose in their si- uh, sense of righteousness that we call good evil, uh, to, to, I'm sorry, we call evil good in order to justify ourselves. We're just like, oh, well, that's okay, don't worry about it. Why? Because we know that we're guilty. And we can't bring judgment on something else because, well, we're doing the same thing. So there's no judgment. 
That's the one problem. On the other hand, you can go the other side and be too judgmental, right? Where you're, you're judge, jury, and, and uh, what's the other one? Executioner, thank you. It's an, it's an attempt to justify yourself and become judgmental in spirit by focusing on exposing others. Why? So we don't have to face what we're doing. Look at them. Because, well, I'm doing the same thing. I don't want anyone to see it. Isn't that nasty? Our human nature is horrible. You know who sees right through all that? Jesus. God sees it. And that's what he's telling these boys. He's like, guys, don't be giving me. I'm tired of this. I don't want to hear your tear, your lips. I don't want to see your tears. I want to see your life changed. And we've already read that when we come to him with our heart, he will change our life. He'll, he'll take care of it for us. So let's have a proper response in repentance. A change of mind that revol- results, not revolts, but results in a change of action. And we'll continue. We'll continue to have problems in our nation because we have problems in our churches, because we have problems in our homes, because we have problems in our hearts. And beloved, that is the end of chapter 2. And my prayer is that we don't have spiritual heart disease. Remember what we want to do. We want to make sure we're faithful to God's word and we're faithful to our word. And you will never, you will never I will never be faithful to my word if I'm not faithful to God's word. Man, and you know who's faithful even when we're not? Jesus. Isn't he so good? God witnesses our covenant, our covering of sin, and the conflict that it uh, produces in our heart. And he only knows when we don't keep our word and why. And that's why he opens this epistle, proclaiming his fidelity of heart. They had lost their heart for God, and it was revealed in their marriages. They were not keeping their word. So on Valentine's Day, it's a great time to look at our spouse if we're married and uh, measure your love for them by the love that you have for God. For real. I was thinking about that this morning as I was wrapping this up and doing some notes. I thought, you know, what I need to be looking at is my spouse and thinking about, you know what, if there's any shortcomings in this marriage, I need to be looking at what shortcomings in my relationship with God. That's how that works. And so it's convicting, but that's what we do. Are we keeping the vows of our covenant? If not, why not? Right? If, you, if you're having troubles in your marriage, the first thing that we need to do is consider how well we're submitting to the Lord, whether you're a man or a woman. And when we start uh, with, with drawing close to God's will, we'll be amazed at how that profits the marital relationship. And you're like, yeah, but Brian, I'm single. What about me? Hey, listen. And be encouraged. Keep your fidelity to the Lord because God is faithful to you. And even when we're not faithful to him, he is faithful to us. And the principles don't only apply to the married individual, but to all of us in the body of Christ who are priests and kings and charged in bringing 